I'm James. I'm Jesse. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. James, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Today, I'm kind of blanking on introductions. I'll just say this. I was out in the park, and it was actually really sunny. So that's great, because it's the middle of January. Yeah, it was super warm today, surprisingly. Like, very oddly temperate for uh, early January. And Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? No and no. Okay. Shall we start on some topics? Yes, please. Jesse, your topic is one of the last most wanted Nazi war criminals lives in my town. He sure does. So tell us about this guy. How do you know him? Uh, I've, to my knowledge, never met him. Oh, you don't know what he looks like? Does anybody know what he looks like? Uh, no, I know what he looks like, but he's he's just an old man, right? Like you might not realize... Uh, if you saw him at the grocery store or whatever, but yeah. yeah, his name is his name is Helmut Oberlander. That's an amazing name. I mean, it's a very German-sounding name. I I guess I should I should warn listeners. So much of the of what you read about him is based on what he has said about himself. Some of which is known to be false. So huh. take uh, take the standard narrative about his life with at least a little bit of salt. But so he was a uh, what are called Russian Mennonites, but. These people are sort of ethnically German, I guess, living in Ukraine when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. And he was uh, allegedly conscripted, although maybe volunteered, not totally clear, for the Waffen-SS, the sort of, you know, these units that, that were comprised of foreign citizens who fought for the Axis. Uh, so he ended up in a, uh, a unit called Einsatzkommando 10A, which is part of Einsatzgruppe D. And these people were like, I don't know, if you've ever seen the movie Come and See, you get kind of an idea of, of what these guys were up to. But, you know, they were doing the whole the whole brutal, nasty stuff, uh, you know, locking people in barns and burning them down and shooting people in ditches and the whole works. So he claims that he was uh, conscripted and that, you know, he never had an opportunity to quit and he didn't even know the name of his unit. And as far as he knew, his unit never executed any Jews. And his job was just to trans uh, to translate radio transmissions because he spoke Russian and German. That's what he said. Some other people who are in his unit claim otherwise. You know that that's that's concerning enough. Although the the evidence that he actually participated in crimes against humanity is is kind of limited. But apparently, after he got out of the Einsatzkommando, he re-enlisted in the regular Wehrmacht, huh. uh, which is the part that I think is kind of unconscionable. Right? He was a First-hand witness of and possibly was, participant in the Holocaust, and, and then he decided was like, that "Yeah, that let's the, do that again." Yeah, he at least he decided that was that was the side he wanted to be on. So in any case, he survived the war, and then in the 1950s, he immigrated to Canada. And you know, if you moved to Canada in the 1950s from Eastern or Central Europe, I guess you know there was <laughs> they kind of handed you a form with two boxes on it that said, "Did you do the Holocaust?" Yes, no, <laughs> and. uh he apparently checked the box for no when it seems like the factual answer was yes, which means he obtained Canadian citizenship fraudulently, which makes him deportable. But he's still there. He is still here. So the, the government, starting in the 90s until ongoing, basically has been trying to get rid of him. And it seems like they've finally almost succeeded uh, after many attempts and appeals. And finally, his citizenship has been stripped. So he's no longer a Canadian citizen, uh, and I believe he's going to have to face a de deportation hearing now. Oh, there's so this is this is recent. 
the, he's been under investigation by the RCMP since the 1960s. So, uh, because lots of Waffen SS fighters from Ukraine ended up in Canada one way or another. Strangely, there's even a memorial to a, a Waffen SS unit in Oakville, I think, which is came up in the news uh, last <laughs> year. I think it was kind of, was the the news story was amazing. It was like it was like Nazi war memorial defaced by vandals was the headline, and people people read that and assumed that it meant that neo Nazis had spray painted swastikas on a on a regular old war memorial. Yeah, and that no, it turned out actually no. This, <laughs> you know, anti Nazis had spray painted a Nazi war memorial, and uh, so people were a little confused to learn that that was the case. But I guess, uh, I guess in the fifties and sixties, these these Ukrainian often SS guys were like really prized strike breakers because like so fervent was their anti communist zeal that they hated unions. Oh sure, but in any case, so it sounds like we might finally get rid of this guy. Uh, good riddance. I hope he dies in prison. They're deporting him to prison? It's not totally clear, but it seems like he'll be deported to Germany, probably, because that's kind of where you go if you're a a Nazi war criminal who was at least at one time a German citizen. And Yeah, deported doesn't really, doesn't imply any particular, by itself, doesn't imply any particular destination. Under international law, I think it's required that Canada not make him stateless, so he must have some other citizenship. I assume it's german but so germany like at least recently has decided that it's going to actually prosecute very elderly people who are involved in nazi war crimes so it's possible that he'll face prosecution there although again the evidence against him is kind of circumstantial right hmm. but there you go it's just kind of strange that you know he's, he's 96 right he's one of the last the last of these people left it's just weird knowing every time you every time you go to the grocery store right that you might see him he's Apparently pretty frail. Yeah, yeah. At 96, like, that'll do it. He has kids and grandkids around in town, I think. Some of my, <laughs> you know, I, d- I dug around on Facebook a little bit, and it turns out that, like, I know people who know his grandchildren or whatever. Wow. I guess my town was uh, historically German-speaking and used to be called Berlin, so I think maybe that's why uh, why he came here. This uh, used to be Canada's capital of neo-Nazi publications, I think, back in the 80s. <laughs> Wow. A dubious distinction. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of thinking like, first of all, that you see him at the grocery store. I'm like, oh, yeah, there is a guy that worked at the local grocery store. And he was actually over 100. And he was just like working there because he wanted something to do. Right. Yeah. He's trying to get out of the house. But yeah, no, he was he was apparently like, you know, just like a really long lived guy. Um, and you would, you know, check out on Friday and get a steak and beers and stuff. But he was like 110, I think he lived to. Wow. Holy crap. That's really old. Yeah. That's amazing. You always wonder, you know, if, if I were to see Oberlander in public, like, you know, do you punch him? Maybe, maybe you do, but if you punch a 96-year-old, he might die, right? But would you have a problem with that? I yeah, I wouldn't. I, I mean, wouldn't. would you would you go to prison though? Right, like if you punch someone and they die in Canada, you can you, you can get like second degree murder, right? Does the, do they have to be a citizen? Well, <laughs> I don't think so. Right? Yeah, no, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't punch an old man. Probably if I saw this guy in the street, I would probably just turn around and walk the other way. So I'm looking at uh, the list of most wanted Nazi war criminals, and there are currently. Four of them on the list. They're all in their late nineties, and only only Helmet has a Wikipedia page. 
The rest are red links. I see the list here. The rest are all also in Germany. And all of them are, are Einsatzgruppe people, right? The same as the same as Oberlander, although they were in Einsatzgruppe C instead of D. Yeah, I guess like that's where you go if you're really young and you want to become a war criminal. I guess it's a little it's a little weird. Yeah, I don't know. These guys are kind of heroes in Ukraine to some extent these days, just because of the way Ukrainian politics is is working, right? So I think a lot of these Waffen SS guys are sort of seen as as anti Russian heroes who, you know, tried to preserve Ukraine's independence and the Nazi stuff is overlooked somewhat, but right. Uh, despite, you know, of course, <laughs> whatever, 40,000 Ukrainians fought for the Waffen SS and 4 million fought for the red army, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not sure where to go with this conversation from here. Yeah. I wasn't sure that it was going to make a great topic cause it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not really a, a positive thing. It's just a strange thing that. Yeah. Well, the strange, the strange thing was exactly why I put it on the list, but it might be one of those things that's interesting as a single sentence and not so much. As a conversation. It's both strange, but it's also very ordinary, right? Because it's not like he, like he, he's known to do anything specific. He's just like associated with this group. Right. right. So there's, there are allegations about what he did. So, I mean, so he says that he sort of didn't really do anything. He just translated radio messages or whatever. And then I guess there's some, at some point in the Soviet Union, some people who were also in his unit who got gulagged or whatever claimed that he was in fact like a enthusiastic participant in the murder of Jews which he did personally many times but I mean that's just what some people said and he says what he says and they said what they said and right. I can tell what he actually did yeah and I wonder like given how little information there actually is about his life does that mean they're going to have a hard time prosecuting him or are they just going to like say yeah we're going to punish you because we want to punish somebody for World War II. Yeah, right. I don't know what the what happens in Germany. I know you read news stories about them prosecuting very elderly people for like you know who were janitors at concentration camps or whatever, and like I don't know what their their sort of standard of evidence is. Right. Well, shall we? Uh, shall we have another topic? Yes, please. Sure. James, your topic is what's Michael, the other cartoon fat cat. So. Everybody knows about Garfield, at least if you're like an English speaker, I guess. Let's say someone doesn't know about Garfield. Can you explain Garfield to our listeners? <laughs> so, Garfield is is a, a comic strip about a, a orange cat who is fat and lazy and likes lasagna. And he has an owner, and the owner's name is John, and he's a cartoonist, I believe. And there's various, like, storylines about Garfield's interaction with, like, the other household pets and with John. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good description of Garfield. Yeah, there's, there's, your, there's your summary of Garfield. Now, What's Michael is about a fat cat who is orange, does not have a specific owner, uh, mm. instead in every, every story, the owner is different. So it's like an anthology almost. And Michael is not really like a very characterized cat like Garfield. He's just kind of an ordinary, like acts like a cat. 
you know, like how you would expect a cat to act. So um, do you think it's a different cat in every story? Yeah, that's, I, I think that's, that might be why it's called What's Michael is, is like, you're, you're kind of trying to, as you read the story, like wrap your head around, like what's the, the context here? Right. And, and by the time you've kind of done that, the story is ended and you're on to the next one. <laughs> right. I was, uh, I was really sure that this was going to be about Heathcliff, who I guess is the other, other fat orange cat. In- <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and like, I think Heathcliff actually came first. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a great, um, if, if listeners are not aware of Heathcliff, there's a great medium post about him called He's Wearing the Gravy Helmet Again, the greatest single panel in modern American comics, <laughs> which is about how strange a lot of Heathcliff comics are. Like, do you know, um, do you know the infamous Far Side Cow Tools panel? <laughs> yeah. So there's like a lot of Heathcliff panels that are very Cow Toolsy. Cow Tools is worth explaining. Cow Tools is a uh, um, oh now I have to explain Far Side. That's going to be uh, an endeavor. Yep. <laughs> uh, Far Side is a is a single panel comic from the 80s and I think the 90s that was it was it was always very offbeat sciency like there was there was like a lot of scientists in the strip a lot of animals in the strip and it was always kind of bordering on gross um and cow tools this could this could be a a useful uh a useful point of reference for what far side was like but cow tools was a strip where the joke was that there are these tools that don't really look like anything and they're not really tools but it's the best a cow can do and there were just four of these laid out in a row but one of them, and this was not apparently authorial intent, one of them kind of looks like a saw. And so the uh, the audience, when upon looking at this, decided that understanding this joke requires that they figure out what the other three tools are supposed to be. And this became apparently a, a big letter to the editor kind of a thing where like, I think cow tools means this or how cow tools is just confusing me and I'm, I've been thinking about it all week. Right. I think Larson explained at some point that if cows were to make tools they just probably wouldn't be very good right that was that was the joke but it has a kind of dot off flavor to it uh that i think the the author of this medium post i'm looking at identifies also in heathcliff so i'll, I'll describe the panel that the titular panel so heathcliff is a stripy orange cat who lives with his family and he's always sort of doing wacky stuff some of which involves wearing helmets. That's like a recurring thing that Heathcliff does for unclear reasons. Uh-huh. Um, and so in this panel, he's sitting on the ground outside the kitchen. And in the kitchen is the, the family he lives with, plus another family it looks like they have over for dinner. They're eating a turkey. And they're all looking at Heathcliff. And Heathcliff is sitting calmly wearing a helmet that says gravy. And the caption is, he's wearing the gravy helmet again. So... Is Heathcliff like? Did they? Is this like Nancy, where like suddenly like a Tumblr user started writing Nancy and it got really funny? Like, was there suddenly a new author of Heathcliff who's who isn't like a thousand years old and and knows how to write jokes? Yes. So, uh, according to Wikipedia, anyway, the original author of Heathcliff is George Gately, who wrote it from 1973 to 2001, and then someone named Peter Gallagher took over after that. Okay, yeah. 
I think I remember Gallagher because his name always appeared in the strip when I was a kid. But I remember nothing about like any of the Heathcliff strips at that time. Right. I think I would argue that they're not funny in in the like. I, I don't think most newspaper comic strips are very funny, but you know Heathcliff strips are like not really funny even by that standard. They're only <laughs> funny in this like kind of weird Dada way where the jokes don't really make that much sense. Or like the world isn't believable, but you have to really kind of think about it to get that. Yeah. So who remembers uh, Heathcliff and the Cadillac Cats? Was that a Saturday morning cartoon? Yeah. I I didn't. I haven't actually watched that. I just guessed from the name. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of it. Okay. Well, so I, I I was actually fond of that show. It was a two-parter show. So like in the first half, it would be a Heathcliff story. And then the second half, it would be a Cadillac Cats story. And the, the Cadillac Cats were, like, original characters for the show. And I actually liked those better. But, like, the Heathcliff stories were usually, like, Heathcliff proves that he's, like, the baddest cat in town. Or, or like, he, he raises money to get what he wants. And it's really kind of, like, Heathcliff's a power fantasy. Because, like, there's this big dog, Spike, that's presumably like the bully but Heathcliff just beats him every time like they get in a fight and he wins so Spike's actually like cowering and afraid of Heathcliff yeah he's constantly like stealing meats and fish from vendors of meats and fish and they don't seem to be able to do anything about it he'll just be like standing in their store wearing a helmet that says fish and like there's nothing anyone can do about it he's just gonna take all the fish that's I mean what what can you do what can you do when Heathcliff, Heathcliff wants your meats and fish? I want uh, an Into the Spider-Verse style movie with Garfield Heathcliff and this third cat who I learned about today. What's Michael? I really thought like, what's Michael was a question that the topic was asking. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it helps It helps to understand that this was a manga, not a like an American strip. Right. But it's still kind of unusual in that the stories aren't like four panel strips. They're actually like a few pages, most of them. It's, it's like a different kind of storytelling from the other two. I wonder if the title is a bad translation or something, because What's Michael is, is a really odd title in English. I'm pretty sure that they just used English in the title. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I've just been browsing. The, I scrolled through that, uh, that Medium article about the gravy helmet. And wow, he's got a lot of helmets. Yeah, it's it's a recurring gag that he has different helmets that he wears for different activities. I guess maybe it's supposed to signal that he's like willing to get into a fight about the thing. Like you're gonna have to give him gravy because oh. he's got you know because he's gonna fight you if you don't. And he's wearing the helmet, so you know. I, gonna... Yeah, I have to say, like the more context I get for this joke, and the more sense it makes, the less I like it. So yeah, I'm going to have to it's... ask you to not tell me any more hypotheses <laughs> about... All right. You just want the cow tools experience? <laughs> yeah. It's the name of my band. <laughs> that is pretty good. That's a good name. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah, I'm ready. My topic is, in the patent for Tapper, the developers admit that it's just Space Invaders tur turned on its side. So Tapper is a video game from the 80s where you play a bartender... That's essentially shooting beer at oncoming customers. And in, in the patent, they list um, 
I, I don't I forget the the format of the patent, but they're like talking about similar works or works that um this 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 idea was derived from, and one of them was how basically how this is the same thing as space invaders, but like rotated ninety degrees. So like instead of shooting upwards at the space invaders, you're shooting to the left at the oncoming patrons. It's it's interesting that they would say that in the patent. Obviously, I guess you have to talk about prior art, but. This seems less derivative of Space Invaders than like many games you could probably get on the App Store now, right? <laughs> yeah. The the like one distinction is that it's it goes in um in, there are lanes, right? It it has this whole thing of like, oh, like they'll leave cash on the, the bar and you have to actually run down the bar to get the cash. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of funny things where, where it's like, oh, but you aren't dodging the bullets. You're actually collecting the bugs as they come back. Right. Yeah. I forgot about that too. The, uh, the mugs, if the mugs break, that's bad. Yeah. That's, that's the end of your life. It's it, like, it, you're actually mostly worried about like managing the flow of cups or mugs that, so that like you can actually keep up with it. Because if you if you have too many in too many places, then you can't. Yeah. So there's there's like there's a different strategy to it than Space Invaders. So even though they say that in the patent, it's definitely its own game, and it's like I, I enjoyed playing it as a kid. So I, I would say you know if you want to see what you do if you take Space Invaders and turn it on its side and also change all sorts of things about it, then that's Tapper. <laughs> Did you, you, you were allowed to play Tapper as a kid. You didn't, you didn't have to play root beer Tapper. Um, so I played the Atari port of it, but it was a pirated version. Atari 800. Yeah. The Atari 800 version. And I don't remember if it had root beer Tapper in the, I think it just said Tapper. Right. But like, I don't know, would, would they have actually ported it directly like that? I'm like trying to remember. I mean, if it was pirated, then like all the, the pirates might have been like, well, let's make this the real thing where you can really get drunk and erased the words root beer. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think specifically, like they had like a Bud advertisement or something in, oh, in right. the backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. So it says here, most of the home versions of Tapper featured the Mountain Dew logo. While the ZX Spectrum and Amstrad CPC versions had the Pepsi logo, but they retained the bartender character of the original arcade game instead of the soda jerk from Root Beer Tapper. I didn't know they changed the character. So that's a little weird. Yeah. Who made Who made Tapper? Good question. Uh, Marvin Glass and Associates, and released by Bally Midway. Marvin, like it... Sounds like a law firm. Huh. A toy design and engineering firm based in Chicago. Oh, they made Mousetrap and Lightbright. Yeah. There's another arcade game from that time, which is a electromechanical game. And I know about it because it's uh, uh, not really a pinball, but it's kind of related. And it's called Ice Cold Beer. Oh, right. That's the one that triggers your trypophobia. <laughs> what, what that one is, is it's a vertical game. And it has kind of the like avoid avoid the holes while guiding the ball and it's controlled by like manipulating this rail that can tilt right so it's it's like a pretty unique game and like well it, i'm sure it was at one point but it, like i feel like it's a classic bar game that's been done a bunch of times now 
Yeah, like you'd think so, but I don't know. Like I, I've I've looked at people mention it in like pinball forums and stuff, and they're like, "Yeah, I wish somebody would do another one like this." Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they just gave it a bunch of names. But yeah, I was wondering if like the two were related because I don't remember who made ice cold beer. Taito. Ah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any connection. Oh, I can see what you mean about the trypophobia. Yeah, it's it's pretty gross looking. Uh, I don't uh, I don't have that thankfully, but it does remind me a little bit of honeycomb or or like very very holy Swiss cheese or something. Right, James, did you play Tumbleseed? Tumbleseed that doesn't ring a bell. It was uh, released in 2017. It was an indie uh, ice cold beer RPG. Okay, yeah, I don't I never saw that one so. Interesting. I remember being really frustrated by the writing, but that's every game for me. So that basically doesn't mean anything. That's a, that must be a, an interesting perspective to have. I feel like I, uh, there's this, uh, this guy who has this sort of constructed world that he writes about and, and does some conlanging and stuff where in his constructed world, people, the, the sort of people of the planet that he imagines or whatever, uh, don't have stories or they don't have stories with characters instead their sort of fantasy is what he calls world state literature hmm. so it's this idea of of you know stories without characters where what's interesting is just describing the world in detail uh so <laughs> i guess the idea is that the people in this world do the kind of thing that he likes to do which is describe imaginary worlds in detail right um, but that kind of stuck with me because i feel like i when I consume media like games or movies or TV shows, I'm usually not very interested in the story or the characters. I just kind of like the atmosphere of the setting and the way the costumes look and that kind of stuff. So I feel like I have a, maybe a kind of opposite reaction to video games where I just kind of don't care what the story is. And like a, a bad or cliched story probably doesn't bother me very much if the world of the game is cool. Right. I mean, I, I usually appreciate game stories if they have some kind of thematic context to them when i when i get annoyed is when there's a plot and characters and the characters exist to be characterized and not like do things that are relevant to like the rest of the game Uh, can you give an example of that I, i feel like this is this is the case with a lot of um jrpgs like more recent ones um you know, there's a lot of plot, and then it doesn't feel connected in any way with, like, combat and grinding and inventory management and all the things you do in a JRPG. Right. So I'm left feeling like, oh, I would rather have these things, like, split apart than, like, taken all together. Yeah. Right. The the sort of mechanics in the story and the characters are not integrated very well. They just kind of are different facets of this one thing. Yeah, I feel like that's, uh, I mean, I haven't played JRPGs recently, but, you know, in the 90s, that was certainly when they were trying to add more story to uh, to JRPGs, like in the, they definitely had a lot of that stuff where like they will have, here's a, a plot scene and it basically exists in an entirely separate world from the actual gameplay. And honestly, like, I think that might be, that might come uh, from... Or, or have the same roots as, like, if you watch, like, a Magical Girl anime series, 
they will have their transformation scenes. And then the combat in those shows takes place in this entire other world with an, like an abstract background than the real world. So like that, that might have roots in the same, whatever the same origin is. It's a very kind of modal approach to, to the medium, right? Where you're so explicitly separating out the different aspects of the thing. Yeah. That reminds me a little bit of Power Rangers, right? Where the plot is all American actors and then the fight scenes are clips from Japanese Sentai shows. So they, they, they're in different costumes and they act differently and so on. And I always wondered, what are the analogs of the American high school scenes in those shows? Do they have regular like people just walking around that then put on the costumes and fight? I don't know. I've never seen the any any actual Sentai shows. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't know about this one. That's probably an interesting constrained writing problem to try to build a plot around those scenes. Well, it's definitely like um, there, there have been a, a number of dubs where they essentially do a different story. Right. And reuse the same animation. It's a little bit like, um, you know, the movie Shogun Assassin. It's like a, a recut of the first two Bone Wolf and Cub movies, like re- recut and redubbed. So the plot is different. I hadn't heard of that. That's interesting. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yep. Yes, please. This is a write-in. Brad asks, hummingbirds have to consume twice their body weight in a day to survive. If you had to do this, what would your strategy be? So I I saw this in the topic bucket a while ago and thought about it. My only idea was that being successful at this would be excruciating no matter what, and therefore your strategy should be to kill yourself. That was, <laughs> that was as far as I got with it. Yeah, that's just putting the burden on the rest of us. Now we have to eat enough to make up for the, what you're not eating because you're dead. Well, it's not. That's not true because hummingbirds don't need to consume the nectar because the net, like the nectar, needs to be consumed or something bad happens. It's because they starve <laughs> if they don't consume it, right? Okay. Yeah. So my strategy, I would, I would have to learn to fly in place to burn all these calories. That's that's ba- that's basically where I was going. I was like, well, there's no requirement in this question to be a plausible answer. So I would just become a hummingbird for a while, and then I would be able to do what a hummingbird does to survive. Yeah, the way the question is framed, it's about it's about mass or weight, right? So it's you just have to consume double your mass. I was thinking like if it was about calories, then it's a little more manageable and the. In that, like, you can choose the most calorie-dense foods, like butter and lard. If it's mass, you can choose the most mass-dense foods. <laughs> like, the foods uh, of highest density, like lead? Delicious like, yeah. lead shot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to guess iron, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was guessing iron because the Earth's core is, is like, at the bottom, so it must have sunk there. <laughs> right. Yeah, iron is, iron is pretty dense, I think. Uh, I think lead is the densest naturally occurring element. Is that true? No, there's like molybdenum and stuff. I don't know. I don't know any chemistry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, if you consumed any of those things, you would die from metal poisoning, right? So like, that's not going to help either. <laughs> I'm I'm searched for densest food, and it's it is just giving me nutrient dense foods, which is right. not it's, what I asked for. It's telling you about <laughs> butter and lard, right? I I know this only because you know the. Early Arctic and Antarctic explorers brought huge amounts of frozen butter with them because that's like the most 
efficient uh, food to have to haul on sleds. Yeah. Which meant they were just eating like chunks of frozen butter all day. <laughs> According to this, salt is 2,000 kilograms per cubic meter. Right. Okay. So just eat, eating my weight in salt every day, that's going to be. You would struggle to consume, I think, a cubic meter of anything. That's a lot. Well, I don't weigh 2,000 kilograms. Okay. Okay. Sure. Right. So you, yeah, you do the. If it's about your body weight, you can do the math here. Yeah. I mean, you still die though, right? Because you, if there's, if your like body is too salty, your brain doesn't work. So you have to consume right. the right, the right proportion of water as well. Yeah. Water is about a thousand kilograms per cubic meter. Almost, almost by definition, right? I think the. Oh yeah. According to this chart, it's only 997, but uh, maybe like the water in that one locked vault in France is. <laughs> right. I I think I think I was thinking that one milliliter weighs one is one gram of water or something. I don't know if that's like by definition or it just happens to be almost the case. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be a great segue, except we have a topic in the way. Oh no! We, are we allowed to reorder them? Is that is that acceptable? <laughs> uh, James, are you okay with this? Sure. All right, Jesse. Your topic is realizing pop cans are three hundred and fifty-five milliliters because that's twelve U.S. fluid ounces. Yeah, so this is this is something that uh, maybe embarrassingly occurred to me only as an adult. Yeah, so this this is a can of Diet Coke, and it is uh, it is labeled 355 milliliters. And I always thought as a kid, like, who came up with that number? That's a weird number. Why don't why not 350? Why not 400? Right? And the answer, of course, is that 355 milliliters is 12 U.S. fluid ounces, and there's a factory somewhere punching out these cans, and they don't want to make different cans for different markets. And someone decided that 12 fluid ounces was the right amount. So the ones that we get here are just labeled 355 milliliters instead of 12 ounces. That makes sense. Yeah. But I was, yeah, I was kind of surprised. But I think in discussing this earlier, <laughs> you were mentioning that you really enjoyed uh, the confused situation regarding what a pint is and the government form you can fill out to complain about whether you got enough beer at a bar. Well, the, there's a phone number. This was what I was what I was loving was that if like if if you go order a pint of beer at a bar and they give you an American pint, you can call this number and report them. Right, exactly. The the reason is that uh, although the US is often said to use the quote um imperial system, that's like not really the case because there are some US measures that are different from the imperial ones, including all the the pint, gallon, fluid ounce stuff. So uh, an imperial pint and a U.S. pint differ pretty significantly. Right. And in Canada, the, the law is that if a bar is advertising a pint, they must give you an imperial pint, not a U.S. pint. However, many bars use American-sized pint glasses as a way to fuck you. <laughs> so, yeah, you can call a government snitch line to, to get them in trouble. Confusingly, there's there's also uh, an in between amount that is sometimes called a metric pint that is half a liter, <laughs> which is you know just because we needed more confusion. It does occur to me that <laughs> something something I find strange about the U.S. system of measures is that the there's a a measure of volume called a fluid ounce and a measure of mass called a dry ounce. So right. if I understand correctly. Yeah. The unit of density in the United States is ounces per ounce. 
<laughs> yeah. I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't imply though that Canada really uh, takes the metric system too seriously. We ended up with a kind of partial conversion in the 1970s that resulted in us using a weird mishmash of the US and metric systems depending on the context. That sounds frustrating. That sounds like it's not the best. Yeah, it's so for example if if you're like older than 60 you refer to the weather in Fahrenheit but younger than 60 you use Celsius. If you were born in Canada, you probably use feet and inches for your height and pounds for your weight and meters and kilograms for everything else. If you were born outside Canada, it's possible that you use centimeters for your height and kilograms for your weight. Yeah. Stones. I don't think I've ever encountered stone in the wild in Canada. I think that's a purely British thing, but... I can't find it now, but I I remember seeing... um... I was trying to do a unit conversion and Google had, you know how Google will like give you like, here's a snippet of a web page that answers your question. Right. And it's, it's often not, <laughs> not correct or not answering your question. Exactly. Yeah. And in this case, it was doing some sort of conversion through ounces where one side of the, of the conversion was fluid ounces and the other side was dry ounces. It was, it was pretty horrifying, and I wish I could quote it at you because the the it would be better if it was more specific. But I can't find it. There's Wolfram Alpha will do all kinds of bizarre conversions for you if you want. <laughs> yeah, but it, it knows about a really, really wide variety of units. Got to write to Stephen Wolfram and complain about the dry ounce. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's also those the Troy ounce and the. Avoir du poids ounce or whatever, where there's there's a few strange contexts where a slightly different ounce is used. Right, yeah. About how well the well, but the ounce of gold is is slightly heavier or something like that or lighter. I can't remember which. Right, then an ounce of feathers. Right. It's like it's like the that annoying pedantic double gotcha bar trivia thing <laughs> right. where, where, where the gotcha is supposed to be aha an ounce of anything is the same as an ounce of anything else and then the double gotcha is aha it's actually not right yeah I'm, I'm trying to think of how to formalize this but regarding uh converting round numbers into other units i feel like there's got to be some sort of way to think about this where you have to preserve the number of significant digits because I've seen people complain about like news articles translated from English where uh, Americans said um, like this guy flew a thousand feet in the air and then the uh, article that's translated says he flew 304.8 meters into the air. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, no. So, I've had conversations with people from Europe, you know, like on IRC or something and they get really annoyed when I talk about calories because they're like, how can you only have like a thousand calories? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, well, we mean kilocalories. And they're like, oh. That's one, that one doesn't really bother me because it's so, it's always so clear when, which one someone's using just by just the size of the number. But you do have to be aware that it's a different thing, I guess. It's, uh, it's unfortunate that the Fahrenheit and Celsius temperature scales overlap enough to be ambiguous. <laughs> Right about the weather anyway, where where you know, like a thirty degrees could be either one of them. Yeah, right. Is is like pretty chilly in Fahrenheit and very hot in Celsius, but it could reasonably be either one. 
yeah, they're both human human temperatures. That is that is interesting about about the avoiding excessively precise conversions because if you were to round it to the to the right number of significant digits or something, it, that also feels kind of wrong in a way. Like three hundred meters. Yeah, if, if you said that twelve like U.S. fluid ounces is therefore sort of three hundred and fifty milliliters, like it's it's off by. Yeah, they could just put slightly less soda in the in the can. <laughs> prefer prefer uh, not to have that happen to me. I think I want <laughs> I want my full <laughs> three hundred and fifty five. The example you gave with like a flu a thousand feet in the air is kind of a localization because presumably, like if you're saying exactly a thousand, <laughs> they didn't they didn't actually go a thousand feet. Right, it, it was just like a figure of speech. Right, yeah. A thousand just means a lot here. And so using any precision at all would be incorrect. This, isn't this the case in the Bible where like 40 is used to mean just like a kind of very large number? Oh, that makes sense, yeah. But it's it's kind of strange because that feels like a, a number that's too small to use that way to us. But maybe I guess people in the ancient past didn't feel that way. Right, right. Now, the 40 might just be that that number feels very high. And that's the number everybody uses to mean a lot in that cu- in that culture. Right. Have you ever seen, uh, speaking of, uh, so I noticed that you say soda instead of pop. So have you ever seen that excellent map that's like really detailed regional split of what soft drinks are called across North America? I have seen maps like that, but I'm not sure which one you mean. I think I know which one. It's like interactive and you can like click on areas and see the breakdown even right so there's there's sort of like an east west uh pop versus soda thing and then texas uses coke generically and then parts of parts of appalachia have really unusual terms that are not used anywhere else right i i want to i want to believe that like someone has been convicted of a heinous crime based on which word they used Oh, like the the scene in Inglorious Bastards where he holds up the number of fingers for three the wrong way. Right. Well, there was a there's an example of this from referring to um I think it's the 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 strip of grass between two lanes in the road. Right. Or between <laughs> yes. uh where in a ransom note somebody used a very obscure term to refer to that, like leave the money on the the devil's strip or something like that. Right, that's that's hyper local. Right, and it was just it narrowed it down to like a specific town. Right, wow. There's um, I've definitely done maybe like a New York Times website thing or something where they they ask you a bunch of those questions, like what do you call this? What do you call this? What do you call this? As a way of pinpointing what your your regional dialect is. But unfortunately, they almost universally only do the U.S. So <laughs> I get placed in like uh, you know, somewhere in the Midwest or something. But right. It's the the northern Midwest. Do you want to use pop cans as an excuse to talk about how recycling is a scam that only really existed for a short period in the nineties as a real thing and is oh, uh, yeah. just kind of pointless? Yeah, one of the one of your topics that we didn't end up putting on the list was that almost everything made of plastic still exists. Actually, do you want to do you want to just dive into that? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of all there is to it, right? It's very very little plastic recycling actually happens. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to go into it. I've learned recently that 
recycling is fake and always was and was just uh, a way to get people to buy more things made of plastic because we believed that they could be recycled. Right. There was there was a time when it was economically viable to ship unsorted plastics to China. And what did China do with them? That's what I want to know. Like, did they actually get recycled? Yeah, I think I, I think they did. But it was mostly a case of, at the time, the US wasn't exporting very much to China. So otherwise, empty cargo ships were returning. Right. And so it made sense to just put anything on it that had like any value at all. So unsorted plastics was what it was. But then pretty quickly, China found, you know, better sources of plastics or... Yeah, they stopped accepting our recycling. Right. Rising wages in China made it not economical to sort plastic anymore. Or something, yeah, something like that. Uh, and so now we're we're still we're still sorting our, our plastic or our recycling and our garbage separately. But like, as far as I know, there's no recycling happening in the United States anymore. Yeah, or in insofar as it happens, I think it's it's done at a loss. Like it's sort of subsidized by municipal governments or something to just sort of keep people employed at a factory sorting plastic for no particular reason. Right. But if 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 China actually did successfully recycle some plastic, then that uh, means that plastic was recycling was not always a scam. Right. I, that was my understanding of this story was that it was like briefly economically viable because of very specific circumstances in the 1990s. Okay. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, like I remember reading articles about this one. Um, it was that. There were certain plastics that were recyclable, but what changed in the sometime in the 90s was that they just started marking all of them as recyclable in different types. <laughs> that's that's where it became a fabrication. Right, because like nobody actually recycles number 9 plastics or whatever. Yeah, and so like that expanded the amount of stuff going into the the recycling bins, which justified it as like a PR campaign. Right. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes, please. Yeah. James, your topic is, is macaroni and cheese known outside of America? Or if you were opening a restaurant in a foreign country, what would what cuisine would it be? Yeah. So I did actually end up looking into this after I posed the question. And there are a lot of dishes that resemble macaroni and cheese all over the world. It makes sense. Pasta and cheese are two popular foodstuffs. Yeah. So like presumably you could you, you could just call it the local dish. There there wouldn't be an issue in in like getting people to eat pasta and cheese. Right. Right. But there are some parts of the world I think where cheese is not very popular, but Yeah, I, I think accepting those parts, but most most of the world has has caught on to um dairy products, so uh, you may already know this, but Craft macaroni and cheese is known as craft dinner in Canada. So, right because it's, it's legally not cheese. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's it. Maybe this has come up before. There's there are rules about what counts as cheese, and I think maybe the rules in Canada are a little stricter or something. Right, but it it, it creates this impression that that's like what Canadians eat for dinner all the time because it's just like <laughs> it's a box of dinner, which is. A, it's very yeah. It's it's like both extremely specific and extremely general. 
It's it's like when the British call them digestive biscuits. <laughs> biscuits that you eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All food is digestive. How strange. I, I also was enjoying that the, the the official name of the color of tennis balls is optic yellow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Same phenomenon. The part of this topic about what kind of cuisine you would make if you were opening a restaurant in a foreign country is interesting because the suggestion is that you should maybe think make something that's like unique to your culture or something but i don't know that there are really very good options for that in my case anyway so i'm not sure what i would make i guess there's also issues of like what what can you source the ingredients for what's profitable to make and so on yeah there's there's actually a lot of um it depends kinds of factors in that because like um, it's, I think one of the things that, that kind of suggested that topic to me was there have been articles about like American Chinese restaurants opening in like Hong Kong and they, they actually, they, they struggle to, to market that, that style of cuisine over there because there's a lot of local styles that are like more familiar. Yeah. Do you, uh, have you heard of this thing about? Thai restaurants, where I guess Thai restaurants were were a sort of deliberate propaganda campaign on the part of the Thai government in decades right, past, yeah. where the government sort of had this program where, in order to promote tourism to Thailand, they sort of offered startup loans and stock menus and recipes and stuff for people who wanted to move abroad and start Thai restaurants. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that uh, like pad thai was invented as uh, something that would appeal to the Western palate and that if you have to, if you open a Thai restaurant, this must be on the menu. I mean, I eat pad thai, so it works. It's good. It's, it's good it's stuff. Really good. I, made, uh, I made some from scratch a couple of weeks ago with like tamarind paste and everything. It was great. Tamarind paste is really sour. Holy crap. <laughs> Does that include fish sauce? Yeah, there's a huge amount of fish sauce in it. I put fish sauce on everything, though. I love that stuff. Yeah, so I was reading about fish sauce, about what fish sauce is, how you make it. Uh, you, <laughs> you made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, apparently, like, you put fish in a bucket until it becomes fish sauce. It's just like you just leave it there. Yeah, my, my understanding is, like, the version I heard of this, anyway, was that you sort of put fish and salt in a crate or something, and you put a bucket under the crate. Yeah, yeah, I, I was I was exaggerating, but like it is an extremely simple, gross process. <laughs> yeah, you you sort of come back a year later, and the bucket will be full of fish sauce. Right, it gets pressed. I think. I mean, it it just sounds like fermentation, another kind. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, fish sauce is an interesting. Like, I'm 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 leery of really using fish sauce because, like, I really like Thai food. But I don't like the flavor of fish, and I'm scared that one day I'm going to make the connection and no longer be able to eat Thai food. Like if I get a bottle of fish sauce and start using it on stuff, like I'm going to realize, oh, there's the fish. I taste it now. I guess it fish sauce does have a kind of alkaline taste, but I don't think it tastes that much like actual, like the kind of fish that you would eat. Right. It tastes a little bit like anchovies, maybe. It's pretty good on pizza for basically that reason. <laughs> right. That's what I had for dinner today, actually, was delivery pizza with a bunch of fish sauce on it. Did you put it on yourself? 
<laughs> yeah, you can't. Uh, <laughs> to, to my knowledge, you can't. Domino's does not offer fish sauce as a topping yet. But yeah, if they did, it would be like it, it would have to be. I'm imagining it would be like in the form factor of like pepperoni, where they they put some in a pan and kind of reduce it until it becomes little blobs that they cut into circles. I mean, they do have that. That's that's anchovies. Okay. Apparently, it's trendy um, in LA to do um, like dipping sauces on pizza now. So I was thinking it would be like that. Oh, that that's that seems like a cool idea. Is that not well known in your part of the world? I don't know. That's I've never heard of that. No. Oh, pizza with dipping sauce has been around for decades here for sure. The closest I've come to that is that like when you order the breadsticks, sometimes it comes with a tub of butter. Garlic yeah, butter. I think I've I, I think I've been to like one place that does that up here. I don't even remember like what I had. There's uh in Ontario there's a chain called Pizza Pizza and if you order anything for Pizza Pizza they ask you if you want garlic dipping sauce with it. Yeah. Yes, the answer is yes. Yeah, it's good. It's not good for you. <laughs> it's tasty, <laughs> for sure. So to answer the question, I would try to open a Taco Bell in Mexico. Whoa. I'm just gonna fucking make it work. Just figure out how do I make this this food? Maybe I'll start tweaking the recipes without telling the base company back home. <laughs> Ask not for whom the Baja blasts. <laughs> isn't I don't eat very much Taco Bell, but isn't isn't like the joke that it's bad? I mean, it's it's not really Mexican food in any meaningful sense. It I, I think it's good. I think Taco Bell is delicious. But it's also, like, not high-quality food. It has the same appeal that, like, all fast food does. In that yeah, that's a fair way to put it. It's not like the original thing. You know, it's not like a good... It's not like a McDonald's burger is a good burger in the classical sense. But you can like and appreciate it on its own terms. I used to like the chili cheese burrito quite a bit as a kid, and I remember looking recently at a Taco Bell menu and finding it not there, so that's a little disappointing. Yeah, apparently uh, Taco Bell recently, maybe pandemic-related, recently really cut down the number of items on their menu. I was trying to think of what what food would be like the regional specialty where I live. It's hard to say. My, like My town in particular, the answer is probably like schnitzel or something. But I, I wouldn't want to try to sell schnitzel in Germany. That might be tough. Right. Uh, unfortunately, it's we, we've gone too far to segue into that topic because we're out of time on Topic Lords tonight. Oh, I didn't notice that that was a separate topic. <laughs> I literally hadn't read the last topic and it's about schnitzel. Huh. <laughs> okay. okay. So that was just a guess. That was an accident rather. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Because there's, there's very few other good options like... I feel like Anglo-Canada does not have a very good food culture. We we have inherited like the worst parts of British cuisine and the worst parts of Midwestern American cuisine. Oh, okay. What's a, what's a, what's a mashup of British cuisine and Midwestern? So like, uh, oh, it would be like a can of cream of mushroom soup in inside of a shepherd's pie. Yeah, I was I was gonna say shepherd's pie for sure. Like, if you take the at least the the shepherd's pie I grew up with uh, uses ground beef instead of ground lamb so i guess it's technically cottage pie or whatever but it, it's also not a pie because we we have that like midwestern casserole culture right so it's like it's just a, a layered casserole of ground beef peas corn mashed potatoes which is good you know, but it's that like does sound good i was gonna say i would eat that 
Yeah, <laughs> the thing is, like, I don't know if you could sell that for 15 bucks a plate anywhere right. in the world, right? Like, it's pretty... There's nothing special about casserole. Put a, put a nice sauce on it, right? Yeah, you put kind of smother it in fish sauce. Yeah, exactly. I guess the the meat often has Worcestershire sauce in it, which is pretty much the same stuff. Really interesting. Yeah, the flavor is a little different, but it's it's another kind of salty MSG flavored kind of brown liquid. Right. All right, we got to end this show, guys. All right. All right. All right, James, if um, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Triple Fox. All right. And Jesse, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me all over the place, but in particular, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend that you do, though. And uh, you can find both of these fine gentlemen on the Topic Lords Discord. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!